Hey, what's going on, Riff? Uh, my name is Noel. I'm one of the pastors here, if I've never had a chance to meet you. Um, we are, as a church family, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going really fast. Like, we have been speeding through, skipping a bunch of chunks, just flying through. And today, we are hitting a massive pivot point in this, this Gospel account. See, the first seven chapters of Mark, and uh, a bunch of, of chapter eight, has been predominantly marked by two things. The first thing that we've seen is that Jesus is proving to the world that he has authority, that he is who he said he is, that, that he has the authority to do the things that he has done. And in, like, for instance, in just chapter one alone, uh, we saw that John the Baptist said he wasn't worthy to untie Jesus's sandals. Uh, we saw that God the Father spoke from heaven and called Jesus his son. We saw that Jesus faced intense temptation in the desert. And then as we progress through these chapters, Jesus healed the sick and he cast out demons and had authority to, you know, interact with the supernatural realm. He, he fed thousands of people a couple different times with just scraps. And then what happens is there are three times in that first seven chapters or so that it says that people were astonished at not just what Jesus did, but what he taught. And the fact that Jesus taught with authority that was unlike any other teacher that anyone had ever seen. And, and there were so many people that were so weirded out by Jesus' authority that they did things like attribute his authority to Satan because they thought only Satan had that kind of authority. Or they were offended at Jesus because he said that his authority came from God. So that was the first seven chapters. It was all marked around Jesus showing his authority. The second thing that this whole section was marked by was Jesus constantly saying, because while he was showing his authority, he, no less than seven times in eight chapters, he was like, Shh, don't tell anybody about that. <laughs> and so it's kind of wild, right? And so if you were with us last week, uh, Pastor James walked through why it was that Jesus kept saying, Shh. but now we get to the end of chapter eight. And he's not going to do that again, with the exception of one time next week to a specific group of people in a specific context that he wants them not to say anything until he'd risen from the dead. You'll see that next week. But other than that, this is the pivot point where Jesus stops saying shh and he starts marching toward the cross publicly and openly. It's as if Jesus' authority to, has been established and now he begins to be crystal clear about who he is and what he came to do. And so if you were here last week, you may remember this passage. We're gonna start where we left off last week in Mark 8, uh, verse 27, where it said this, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Right? You gotta see how this is built to this point. He's been showing his authority, doing all this stuff and now he's like, who do people say I am? And they answered him, well, John the Baptist, uh, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, uh, yeah, but you, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, you are the Messiah. And watch this. Jesus strictly warned them to not tell anyone about him. It's, it's almost as if this first seven and three quarters chapters have led to this moment. And Jesus is like, all right, who do people say I am? Do they get it? 
Have they, have they put the pieces together with my, my miracles and my words and my teaching with authority? Do they know who I am? Have they figured it out? And we see that Peter does. Peter in particular does. And it's a key moment in Peter's, in Peter's life and trajectory. He confidently declares he gets it, right? He's like, I know unreservedly who you are. I know who I'm dealing with. You're Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the King. You're the Messiah that the world has been waiting for. And in word and in deed, Jesus had proven his authority and Peter got it. It's so like one final time here, Jesus says, shh. <laughs> and then, now that his kingship is established, Jesus begins to tell everyone exactly the kind of king he is. If you have your Bibles with you, you can flip, tap, or swipe to Mark 8.31. That's where we're going to start for today's chunk. And remember, this is the very next verse after Jesus said, sternly to not tell anyone who he was. You got that? He's stern about this. This is the next verse, um, 31. And then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly <laughs> about this. Now, what we're going to find here is that three times in the rest of Mark, starting with this one, Jesus tells his disciples exactly what is going to happen to him. The next time is going to be in chapter 9, and then once again in chapter 10. And so let's just be clear about what Jesus is saying right here. He is saying to his disciples, listen, I'm going to die. And my death is going to be intentional, but it's not like I'm going to take my own life. Um, I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be uh, killed. And he tells exactly who's going to do it, right? He says, the elders are going to do it. Chief priests, the scribes, these guys are going to do this. He's going to die at the hands of the religious elite, who the very people that should have been celebrating Jesus' arrival are going to reject his authority ultimately, and they're going to be the, the instruments of his death. But then Jesus says what? That death is not going to be the end for him. He clearly declares that not only is he going to die, but that he's going to rise again after three days. And what does Mark tell us? He now begins to speak openly about this. This plan that Jesus has is not a secret. He begins to tell everyone. He, he's not telling anyone to be quiet. He's marching toward his death on the cross with intent and purpose. And there's an incredibly important word in all of this. Did you catch it? Right there. All of this is necessary. So let's just take some time to consider this. Because there are some people today, uh, prominent philosophers, that would accuse God of a lot of stuff. They would accuse God of being a cosmic child abuser because he sent his son to the cross. There are people who would accuse God the Father of being unnecessary barbaric in the, the, the fact that Jesus was going to be crucified, which is like the, one of the most brutal execution methods that anyone had ever invented. That's why the Romans uh, used it. They, they said, you know, Jesus, there must have been some other way. But Jesus is very clear, isn't he? All of this is necessary. The fact that he's going to die, necessary. The fact that he's going to suffer, necessary. All of this is necessary. He's going to be rejected. That's necessary. So let's try to answer that question. Why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer? Why was it necessary for him to be rejected? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? 
Let's start by talking about my neighbors, my little neighbors. So, okay, on New Year's Eve, it was either last year or the year before. I can't remember. I probably should have asked my wife. It was either last year or the year before. We had a bunch of people at our house to celebrate uh, New Year's Eve, and we're just hanging out at my house. And outside of our house, we hear a crunch. And you know what happens when you hear a crunch outside of your house? Everyone runs to figure out what just got crunched, right, outside the house. So we all run outside, and it turns out that my neighbors, who were also throwing a New Year's Eve party, that one of their guests had backed into our mailbox. Oh, yeah, right? And so what happens at that point? Everybody comes out from the party. So everybody's flowing out from both sides to go to stand around the mailbox and to see if this is something that's easy to put back together. It wasn't, right? So there was gonna have to be a new mailbox. And my neighbor's like, how much do you think a mailbox costs? And I'm like, I don't know. And we start talking about that. And then all of them at his party start pulling out their wallets and handing me cash. And so we just count out. I'm like, yeah, that's probably good enough. Thank you, have a great day. Went back inside. Now, here's the deal. If you boil down the whole crunch outside my house on New Year's Eve situation, there were really only two options. They were gonna pay for my mailbox or I was gonna pay for my mailbox. It's really as simple as that. Now imagine someone wrongs you and it's much worse than a mailbox. They do something truly awful. Maybe they do something unimaginable. They malign your character or they act unjustly towards you or they abuse you or they spread lies about you and separate you from your friends. They steal from you, right? And now as I say all that, you certainly are starting to develop a list, aren't you? A list of people who have done the things (laughs) to you, right? Small hurts, immense life-altering betrayals. And here's the thing about those hurts. There are really only two choices. They can pay, or you can pay. They can suffer, or you can suffer. And here's the philosophical kicker. If you try to make them suffer for making you suffer, you become what they did to you. You become what they are towards you. And there's only one thing that can change that whole equation. Love. So Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian pastor, once paraphrased a guy named William Vanstone, who is an Anglican priest, from a book that doesn't exist anymore, so I couldn't fact check it. But uh, this is what Keller says, Vanstone says, about this whole concept. He says, every person who has ever lived, every one of us, we know the difference between true love and false love. Now, we may not be able to put our finger exactly on it and know why it is, but we know when something's true love and we know when something is false love. And what it usually ends up boiling down to is that false love is something that is always transactional. It is always conditional. It always it basically says, if this person affirms me or meets my needs or does right by me or loves me, then I'm going to love them, right? We all understand that kind of as a transactional love, and that's really false love. And so there's a sense in which false love can never truly be vulnerable because it's always conditional, right? It's always related to whether that person does me right as to whether I'm going to do them right. If they love me right, I'm going to love them right. But true love is the opposite. In true love, the whole the whole thing is not transactional. The whole thing about true love is, is, is that you spend yourself for someone else's happiness and good. 
You give someone else love, whether or not they give you, affirm you or meet your needs or love you. And so it's not transactional. It is one way. A true love is completely and utterly one way. And this true love is the very definition of vulnerability because it doesn't matter what that other person does. You're going to be vulnerable and you're going to love them in one direction. Now think about how counterculture that definition of true love is. Our world says, if I was to crassly boil it down, (laughs) that other people exist to affirm us. Other people exist to love us, to bend over backward for us. And so when they not only don't do that, but they wrong us, and by the way, the Bible has a word for that, it's called sin. We kick them to the curb. Why? Well, if Van Stone is right, and I think he is, he says the reason we do that is because none of us can actually love someone else with 100% true love. Now think about that. If he's right, and I think he is, we all desperately want something from others that we can't get. We desperately want from everyone around us something that we can't even give them. We can't get it, and we can't give it. Now, doesn't that explain so much? I I mean, obviously, we can get close to true love. We can treat people with a true-ish love, but we're never going to quite get there. I mean, like, like the person in my life that means the most to me is my wife, right? So if there's one person that I want to be truly vulnerable to, truly want to bend over backwards to, truly love to, no matter what to, uh, it's my wife, right? But do I do it? If you've met me, you know the answer is no. Uh, Like, I try. I I try most of the time. I fail a lot of the time. And this world is filled with people like me. So if this is true, in our closest relationships, how are we ever supposed to experience true love? Well, for that to happen, the person giving the love must not need anything in return. The person giving that love must be completely vulnerable, not need anything from you because they're completely whole in and of themselves. Let me let Tim Keller, who paraphrased Van Stone, give his thoughts on the matter. He said, God within himself has had all the love, all the blessing, all the fulfillment, all the joy he could possibly want. Why did he create us when he didn't need us one bit? Why is he redeeming us at great cost even though he doesn't need us a bit? He's doing it because he loves us. He wants our joy more than he wants his own. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. That's perfect love. That's unconditional love. That's absolutely radically vulnerable love. All right, so now let's go back to Jesus and Peter. Jesus says, it's necessary for me to suffer and die and be rejected. And Peter has no time to process all of this like uh, Van Stone just did, right? He has no time to think about all of this. He just reacts. When Jesus says, it is necessary, it's necessary for me to be betrayed, to be rejected, to die, he just reacts. And this is what it says. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, of course he did. Jesus was just telling him something that must have seemed absolutely nuts. Why would the Messiah, who's supposed to make everything right, who's supposed to sit on a throne and rule, why would he die? (laughs) 
Like the whole point is you came here, right? You came here to fix stuff and you're just gonna suffer and be betrayed and die. The idea of coming back to, to life in three days must have been so crazy that I'm not sure Peter even heard it. So what does Peter do? It's the word he used there is he rebukes Jesus. And rebuke is a, an extremely strong word. The word rebuke is the word Jesus was used to describe Jesus rebuking demons when he's casting them out. That's, that's what Peter is doing to Jesus. He's absolutely panicking. And so he gets into Jesus' grill, and Jesus, the clapback king, gets back into Peter's grill. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Ultimate insult right there from Jesus, right? You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now remember, this is the same day. This is right after Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. I don't know if it was the same day, but it's literally the next event in Mark's account. He was riding high, right? Peter said, Jesus had said, who do they say I am? And they're like, well, they're all wrong, Peter says. And he goes, who do you say I am? And he says, I'm right. And then Jesus like, you are. And in other gospel accounts, that's when he really praises uh, Peter and says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build this thing on you and just this whole church thing. And so Peter's flying high and then, and then now Jesus calls him Satan. <laughs> what an emotional roller coaster. Why was there such an intense response from Jesus? Because what did he just say? It was necessary. This whole idea of Jesus being um, betrayed and, and, and rejected and dying on the cross is not an option for the salvation of the world. It was necessary for Jesus to face things. It was so necessary that if Peter resisted this, he was signing up for Team Satan. And here's the kicker for us today. Jesus says to him, the problem is you are thinking about human concerns instead of God's concerns. Now we could do an entire sermon series on that sentence alone. In fact, we sort of are. After Easter, I'm gonna give you a, a heads up so you can just start working on it on your own. We're gonna dive into the book of Colossians and we're gonna slow walk through it. Like we've been fast walking through Mark well, you talk about an emotional roller coaster. We're in a slow walk through Colossians, like four or five verses at a time, right? And this is going to be our theme verse, Colossians 3.1. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's like, listen, you are too concerned about human things, earthly things down here versus from God's perspective. And that's what happens is our eyes become very earthly. They just kind of look around this world. And since this is all that we can see, this is all we think about. And so our, our, our vision, our passion, our affections all become incredibly earthly, right? And so we end up living in a way that is contrary to how we are created. We are created in the image of God. We are created to, to be like him, to, to be fully human. We really actually need to lift our eyes away from human concerns. To be what God has created us to be, we need to remember that we are already seated in the heavenlies with Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And so what Jesus does here with Peter is super masterful. He looks him in the face and he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he turns around and watch this, starting in verse 34. It says, calling the crowd along with his disciples. So now he calls everybody over. <laughs> Has this conversation with Peter. He's like, everybody, come on. 
Let's go. Disciples, crowd, everybody. Gather up. Take a knee. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of uh, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. <laughs> so check this out. Jesus is telling the crowd. He's telling the disciples. He's telling Peter. He's telling us, just as it was necessary for me to die on the cross, it is necessary for those who follow me to pick up theirs. And he gives us three reasons why it's necessary. You see him? He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This is where true love lives. Remember that thing that we all long for but can't get? That unconditional one-way love coming at us? The thing that we miss the ball on all the time when we're trying to love other people, we're always, we don't even realize how, how, how deeply seated our selfishness is until we get into relationships with someone that we love and they need us to be unconditionally loving and yet that little selfishness just creeps its way in again, right? Uh, remember that whole thing? This love, it, what it does is it intentionally ranks itself underneath others. It lays down its life. And why do we do this? Jesus told us because of Jesus and the gospel. So get this. This whole idea of laying down our lives for others is not about being a doormat and letting people stomp all over us. It's not about cowering in a corner and being self-defeating. It's about following Jesus' example of confidently, intentionally choosing to lay down our lives, to lay down our comfort, to lay down our preferences, to lay down our control of our life for the sake, Jesus says, of the good news, of the gospel. What does that mean? When we do that, we preach a little mini sermon of what Jesus has done in our lives. See, from the time we are born in our culture, people are like, look out for you. Look out for your life. Fight for your life. Stand up for yourself. And Jesus says something radically different. This guy named George McDonald is an old Scottish uh, preacher. <laughs> and this is what he wrote. He said, Christ died to save us not from suffering, but from ourselves. Not from injustice, but from being unjust. He died that we might live, but live as he lives by dying as he died, who died to himself that he might live unto God. So what does Jesus say? This is his second reason. He says, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life. This right here is what it means to lift our eyes from earthly concerns to where Christ is. Jesus is essentially saying, you can gain the wealth of Jeff Bezos, <laughs> the beauty of Gal Gadot, the brains of Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> and it's worthless. From an eternal perspective, if you don't have Jesus. And that's why this next bit carries such a punch. 
He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I think this is the toughest pill for us to swallow. Because for many followers of Jesus in our culture today, there are things that Jesus says that makes us step back. There's things that Jesus says that causes us to kind of dance around them, right? Or we try to explain in a non-offensive way something offensive that Jesus said, and we are ashamed when Jesus says stuff like this. In fact, a bunch of the stuff that Jesus says that causes us to be ashamed in this culture moment right now is all about what it means to follow him. Let me read a few examples, and I can't remember if I gave these to them for the screen or not. I think I did. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is the cost to following Jesus. Some of the people that we are closest to will turn against us when we follow Jesus. They will think we're crazy. They'll think we're deluded. They'll think we're old-fashioned. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You see, the Old Testament law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it was actually kind of crazy. People think about it only in one direction, but it was actually two-directional. It wasn't just about retaliation. It was actually a protection of both the perpetrator and the victim. Victim, Because basically what it says is the punishment could not exceed the crime uh, so that the victim is both satisfied and the perpetrator is unfairly punished. It was actually building a just kind of system of saying you can't do too much, but you got to do something. What Jesus is saying here is crazy. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you got to follow a different, crazy, radical way of living. And what he's saying is that the rights of the victim are still protected by the law, but those who follow Jesus don't have to claim their rights. They could lay them down. You could pick up your cross instead. See, we know that Jesus has already taken the punishment for all the wickedness in the world. And that includes the wickedness that has come toward us. So we can trust that he's got it taken care of. It's radical. And if you think that's hard to accept, listen to what Jesus said. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Our culture right now was to say that the gate is wide. And Jesus says, the gate is narrow. And in John 14, 6, we've all heard this verse. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's narrow. Now, you can try to dance around all this. You can try to step back from it. But Jesus doesn't stutter. He says something really bold here. He says, are you going to be ashamed of this? Are you gonna be ashamed of me? So these are the three reasons Jesus gives us for why his followers must pick up their cross, a brutal instrument of death. So I guess we should answer the question, what does it mean to actually pick up our cross? (laughs) What does that actually mean to do that? 
Well, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. And that's it right there. Taking up your cross means denying yourself. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, so we already got that one settled, he must deny himself and follow me, right? And so this denial of self is what Jesus is talking about. Think of the symbol of the cross, this instrument of Jesus' death. What does it mean to deny yourself the same way Jesus did? It's simple and it's impossible. Love the way he loved. That's how you do it. In love, Jesus did not save his own life. In a very real physical sense, Jesus lost his life. Jesus really died on the cross. He was the only one who didn't deserve to die. He, and he died on the cross. Jesus really physically was buried in the ground. And just as he had said to his disciples three times in the gospel of Mark, starting in Mark 8 and then in 9 and then in 10, he rose on the third day. He really physically did that. And he did it. He gained back his life in the process of giving it away. Are you willing to follow the lead of Jesus? Because that's our calling. The only way to truly do that, and it's gonna be impossible for all of us, we'll just say that, but the way to get close (laughs) is to first experience the love of Jesus in your life. To realize what Jesus has already done for you. Just as hard as it is for you, to love someone who has maligned you or mistreated you or abused you or abandoned you or betrayed you. Know that you've done all those things to Jesus. And what did he do? He laid down his life for you. He, he, He denied himself when you didn't deserve it. When you start to really grasp that and you accept that from Jesus and say, yes, I I accept that you've done this for me, you will want other people to experience what you have experienced. You will want other people to experience the love that you've experienced from Jesus. And so what you do is you begin to do that same thing for others when they don't deserve it either. When they malign you or mistreat you or betray you, you lay yourself down for them. You love yourself for them. So you pick up your cross by loving like Jesus loves by denying yourself for others' good, for their happiness, for their joy, loving the unlovable and those who don't affirm you and those who don't bring you happiness and those who don't bring you pleasure and even those who annoy you. I swear it's harder to love someone who annoys us than someone who abuses us sometimes. Really, he doesn't like this guy, right? We do all of that for the sake of Jesus. We do it for the sake of the gospel, the sake of the good news. We radically love like Jesus so that we can invite them into that love with us. And here's the deal. It's gonna cost you. Of course it will. But you know what you gain? Your life. You gain what you were made for. You were created in the image of God. You were created to be like Jesus. And in denying yourself and laying down your life for others, no matter how they treat you, you are actually gaining back that life that you were created for, that you long for. And you begin to see in your actions out the reflection of Jesus in your life. And then it kind of becomes this little bit of a feedback loop in your life. And that's how Christian maturity happens. It is the upside down nature of following after Jesus. We lay down our lives for people who don't deserve it one bit. We lay down our lives for people who refuse to lay down their lives for us. 
And we do it in the name of Jesus. So that one day they say to us, why are you doing this? <laughs> why are you treating me so well when I treat you so crappy? And people will actually ask you that question once they figure it out. You say, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you about what Jesus did for me. That's why we do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just pray that, uh, that we would be people who deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow after Jesus. We thank you that he's already picked up the most important cross that needs to pick, be picked up, the one that took care of our sins. And because we have already been forgiven, we have already been redeemed, we have already been saved, uh, and we just pray that we would live out of that place. When people mistreat us, help us to love them. When people betray us, help us to love them. When people deny us, help us to love them. Help us have this continual posture in our culture of ranking ourselves underneath others for the sake of Jesus and the good news. And we just pray that through that, you would save people. We pray all this in Jesus' precious and atoning name. Amen.